wouldn't it be great if Jesus were here today walking around among us? That was the sentiment of one of my children as we were having a deep theological conversation in a long car ride several months ago. And it's a, it's a, it's a good point. Like, think of the benefits of that, right? Scripture tells us that the resurrected Jesus appeared to some 500 eyewitnesses. It's great, 1 Corinthians 15. But today, we could in an instant broadcast live images of the resurrected Jesus all around the world. Wouldn't that be amazing? Scientists, imagine this, this would be headline news, scientists studying his body in 2019 and saying just with awe, this guy, we can't explain it, but he's 2,000 years old. Like, I don't know how that we carbon dated his toe or something. Like, he's here and he's alive. Or imagine Jesus going on a world preaching tour, right? Millions coming to Christ, seeing miracles, the gospel advancing. Imagine Jesus planting a church. I'd want Jesus on my church planting team, right? Amen, right? And not, not only that, we as followers could, you know, a, arrange a time to sit down with him. No more struggle as you're trying to pray because you're distracted by what's going on in life. You can sit down with Jesus and, and tell him what's going on in your life. Wouldn't that be amazing? So it comes as a bit of a shock to us as we walk through this gospel story that Jesus does not stick around after his resurrection. He leaves his people. He leaves the world. He, what we're talking about this morning, he ascends into heaven. Tim Chester and Johnny Woodrow in their book on the ascension, they put it this way. They say, the ascension seems a bad strategy. It removes the key piece of evidence that substantiates the claims of Christianity. It's as if our best player by far was substituted just as the game was beginning. Now, at first glance, it may seem like a bad strategy for Jesus to up and leave. But God's word, as we study it, doesn't allow us to entertain that thought for very long. In fact, in Luke 24, after Jesus ascends, Luke tells us that the immediate response of the first disciples was joy and worship and continual praise in the temple. This, was, this meant something meaningful to them. So what we want to do this morning, as we're walking through our series on the Apostles' Creed, he ascended into the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We want to explore a handful of scripture passages that show us not just the importance of the ascension, not like this is an important thing, but also the necessity of it. We don't just have this doctrine as a part of the Christian faith and see it in the Bible. We need this for our salvation. Let me put it a little more boldly in a negative way. Without the ascended Christ, we have no salvation. We have no reigning king, and we really have no ultimate purpose for our dwelling upon this earth here and now. That's how significant this is. And so, here's where we're headed this morning. We're going to see... Uh, That the ascension means for us three things. It means for us, first, that we have a secure salvation. It means, second, that we have a sovereign king. And it means, third, 
that we have a sure mission, a secure salvation, a sovereign king, and a sure mission. So what is the ascension of Christ? Before we talk about the meaning of it, let's just consider for a moment what actually happened. From a historical perspective, as we look at this in the Bible, it's actually pretty simple. Uh, Luke begins uh, his, his writing Acts, written by Luke, telling us what happens after the resurrection. What did Jesus do? We know he spent 40 days with his followers. Luke tells us that in Acts chapter 1, verse 2. He did that before he was taken up or ascended. And during that time, what did he do? He presented himself. He gave many proofs that he was the resurrected Jesus. Paul later tells us that he, he, he was, uh, made himself visible to some 500 eyewitnesses. He also spoke to them about the kingdom of God. You can think of that like a, like a sort of 40-day seminary ministry crash course before he leaves, right? Acts 1-3. And then he told them to wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we get one verse in Acts 9 that tells us what happened in the ascension. Acts 1 verse 9, excuse me. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. That's it. It's the only verse in Acts about Jesus ascending into heaven, about the event. Luke 24, 51, the end of Luke's gospel, is even shorter. He says, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. That's it. Two verses on this event. And if you're like me, you probably, I was talking to Richard earlier, you probably haven't heard many sermons on the ascension of Jesus. It seems like this sort of small little period at the end of the sentence of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, right? We get whole gospels telling us about what Jesus did. We get chapters telling us about his death and his resurrection. And then when it comes to him leaving, one verse. That's it. Or it's sort of seen as like this third installment of a movie trilogy that wasn't very good. The first one was great. Second one, okay. Third one, no one saw it because it was weird. Right, And let's be honest, we're talking about a person floating up into the sky. It's okay to say, you know what, this is a little weird. Right? I watched Mary Poppins with the kids last night. That's weird. The idea of someone floating up into the heaven. But <laughs> there's, there's something more here. It's not just the end of a sentence. It's not just that third movie in the trilogy that no one wants to see. There's something deeper happening. And the implications for us in our lives are often overlooked, but they're extremely, extremely important. And the rest of the New Testament spends a lot of time giving the framework for what happened in those two little verses. And the, the creed is helpful here. Notice that it doesn't just say Jesus ascended to heaven. The creed tells us what happened when he got there. He ascended to heaven, and then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And that phrase, right hand, refers to the position of authority. He sat down on the throne. To paraphrase a theologian named Francis Turretin, we can sum up the event of the ascension by saying that Jesus went up locally, he went up visibly, and he went up bodily from earth to heaven. That's what the ascension is. Locally, meaning this was from a real place, earth, to a real place, Heaven, the dwelling place of God. This wasn't a metaphorical ascension. This wasn't just a story that was told and Jesus actually just died again and was buried. No, 
He ascended. It was visible. He went up visibly, meaning this was an event that was actually seen by his disciples. It wasn't a dream or a hallucination. And he also went up bodily, meaning that Jesus, fully God, fully man, as we've addressed in our our creed series already, ascended to heaven and remains fully God and fully man to this day. He didn't dissolve into the air. He didn't sort of dissolve into the force like Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? If you don't get that reference, well, we can talk later. But he ascended locally, visibly, and bodily to the presence of God. That's the event. What we want to do is spend most of our time considering why in the world something like that should matter so much to us. And why would the disciples see that happen and respond with worship, joy, and continual praise. And so let's jump in here. First, the ascension means we have a secure salvation. A secure salvation. For this, we we turn to Hebrews 9, 23 through 26. The words are on the screen. Leanna just read it, but we need to read this again because there's a lot going on here. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, ascension, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world." But as it is, he has appeared, ascension, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, what is the author of Hebrews doing here? He's, he's, he's talking to a group of Jewish Christians. They would have known this background context of the Old Testament. But what he's saying is that the Old Testament tabernacle, the temple, the dwelling place of God, the sacrificial system, all of those things were just copies of a heavenly reality. God gave Moses, for example, very specific directions on how the dwelling place of God on earth should be built. Why didn't he just say, Moses, build a a building, and then I'll meet with you there? No, he gave extremely specific directions. Why? Because it was an earthly replica of a heavenly reality. They were copies, the author of Hebrews says. And if sinful people were going to worship in the presence of this holy God, there had to be purification for sins. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So God doesn't only say build this place in this way. He says you're going to appoint high priests and there's going to be a sacrificial system and they're going to act as mediators between sinful people and God. We see this in the story of Moses. If you've ever read the Old Testament and heard of Moses going up to Mount Sinai, the people want to stay off the mountain. They say, we're not going up there. We're terrified of the holiness of God. So who goes up for them? Moses ascends a mountain into a cloud to meet in the presence of God on behalf of his people. We see this in the high priests in the Old Testament. What was their responsibility? They were to enter into the tabernacle, which was on a hill. They were to ascend into God's presence on behalf of God's people. 
They were to make sacrifices for their sins, because they were sinners as high priests, they're just like us, and the sins of the people. And then they were to place these offerings on the altar, and they were to burn them. Why? Because when these offerings were burnt, they would ascend to heaven. Exodus 24, the for burnt offering could also be translated ascension offering. Now back to Hebrews 9. All of these are copies. All of these are replicas pointing to something greater. Who is that something greater? Verse 24. For Christ has entered the ascension not into holy places made with hands. He's not going into the temple in Jerusalem because those things are copies of the true things. Where is Christ ascended to? Into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. See what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying Moses, the high priest, the burnt offerings, they were all like a movie trailer. A lot of movie references this morning. I don't know why. It just worked out that way. The trailer is meant to show you, to give you a preview of what's coming. It's meant to excite you. When the movie's released, you don't need the trailer anymore. You've got, you've got the full movie. All these things, the author of Hebrews tells us, it's giving us a sneak peek to the true and better ascension of Jesus. Now he goes on to say in verses 25 through 26, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as a high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The high priests were just like you and me. They were humans, which means they were sinners. They had to purify their own sin before they could even make sacrifice for other people. But Jesus, the author of Hebrews tells us, though fully human, was also fully God. He was the innocent one. He didn't bring another sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. The, sa the high priest had to do this continually. They were constantly making sacrifices because people continued to sin. But Jesus, Jesus does this as the once-for-all sacrifice for his people. And therefore, as the crucified and risen Savior, he doesn't go to a temple in Jerusalem. He ascends into the temple, the presence of God in heaven. So what we're seeing here is that the ascension of Jesus fulfills the priesthood. All of those animal sacrifices and temple instructions, which, let's be honest, they seem so foreign to us, both culturally and religiously. Doesn't seem to make sense, but they weren't just arbitrary rules for an old age. They were instituted by God to say, listen, this is giving you a glimpse of the priestly work of Jesus as he makes sacrifice for your sins and as he stands in the presence of God on your behalf. We can go on and on about this, and, but, but just a few of these things to see, consider this, how Jesus fulfills the priesthood. The priest comes into the presence of God. They were to come through a cloud of incense that was offered up to God. Now, why do you think Luke gives this specific detail at the end of his gospel to tell us that the ascension happens when Jesus is taken up in a cloud? We know clouds are in the sky. What is he doing? He's making this connection. He's saying this is the sacrifice ascending into the presence of God. 
The high priest would come into to make sacrifice with this special vest. It had 12 jewels on it. It wasn't a fashion statement. There was a purpose for that. They represented the names of God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel. So the high priest would go on behalf, bringing the names of his people before God. Jesus ascends on our behalf, bearing our names so that we can be in the presence of God. The price has been paid on the cross, that's the sacrifice. Death has been defeated in the resurrection. But, listen, if Jesus doesn't ascend to the presence of God, then the forgiveness isn't complete. There's a cyclist named Luca Pibernick who helps us illustrate this. In a, it's a very unfortunate but kind of funny story. Listen to this excerpt. It says, a, cycle, a cyclist during stage five of the Giro d'Italia race had one of the most impressive examples of failure through early celebration you'll ever see. You, you know where it's going already. You're like, oh, man. Luca Pibernick from Slovenia thought he had the race won when he made the final sprint through Messina, but he, he realized something went horribly wrong shortly after crossing the finish line with his arms raised. The race wasn't close. Nobody was hot on his heels or sprinting for the finish. He thought he had won, so he just said, I won. But he didn't realize that there was one more lap to the race. So he leads for most of the race. He's in first place if an incredible race, but because he had lost everything, he had lost all his energy, he couldn't catch up. He went from first place to 148th place in one lap. <laughs> it's not funny, I shouldn't laugh. See, the, the ascension of Jesus into the presence of God is the finish line of our salvation. He's, he's run the race, Christ has run it well. He's lived a sinless life. He's died on the cross for our sins. He's been laid in the grave. He's been resurrected victoriously. But what good is a race if you don't finish? The ascension is God the Father receiving and accepting that sacrifice for our sins. And brothers and sisters, without it, we have nothing to celebrate. Because we have no priest pleading for us on our behalf in the presence of God. Now what does this mean for us? By the way, the entire book of Hebrews is about this, not just this passage. And we see an example of this in Hebrews 4, where he gives some applications of this truth. Listen to Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What's the author of Hebrews saying here? He's saying, because of the ascension, if you feel overwhelmed, you can draw near to him. You feel overwhelmed this morning? Like you started the week in first place and then ended in an 148th, right? Like at any moment, you might, you might let go of your faith, right? What does the author of Hebrews tell us? Hold fast to Christ. Why? Because Christ is at this moment 
in the presence of God, holding fast to you. That's the ascension. Maybe you don't feel weak. Maybe you feel strong. Maybe you're self-reliant and you're thinking, no, I'm actually a pretty good person. I nailed it this week. I do spiritual things. I do pretty well on my own. I work hard. And you think, you know what? I actually think I can stand before God on my own accord. And friends, that's you. No, you can't. I don't need to know you or your story to say that none of us can stand before a perfectly holy and righteous God on our own accord and say, see, I'm a righteous person. And deep down, you know that to be true. We had a chance to stand in the presence of God in Genesis 3, and we blew it, and we've been blowing it ever since. That's why Christ came. That's why Christ lived. He died. He rose from the dead and ascended for us. So if that's you, listen, friend, don't look to your own strength to stand in the presence of God. You cannot gain your salvation by your own righteous works. Draw near to Him in faith. Look to the ascended Christ, who is in the presence of God on your behalf. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're not weak or maybe you're not you know, pridefully strong. Maybe you just feel distant this morning. Spiritually dry. You know God is there and you love him, but you're just not experiencing the depth of relationship that you've hoped for. And to you, the ascension says, listen, draw near to him. Because Christ is there on your behalf, you can draw near to the throne of grace. You can pray. You can hear his voice in the word. You have access to the very presence of God because Christ stands in his presence on your behalf. That's been the entire mission of God since sin separated us from him. And so the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 is saying, now he's ascended. He's there. What's the application? Draw near to him. Draw near to him, and the promise is you will receive mercy. What an encouragement to us. The ascension means we have a secure salvation through Jesus, our high priest. So let's draw near to him. But also, number two, the ascension means we have a sovereign king. A sovereign king. And for this, we're going to look at another passage, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. The Apostle Paul says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Ascension. Verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, in this section of Ephesians, uh, it's part of Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. Uh, The Ephesians were in the thick of the power of Rome. This was a place uh, that was very hostile toward Christianity It was surrounded with occult religion. In fact, if you go back and read how the church started in Acts 19, um, Luke tells us that there was a riot against Paul in Ephesus because he spoke against their false god, Artemis of the Ephesians. And there was a riot because as people were coming to Christ, they stopped buying household gods and they were putting blacksmiths out of business. 
So the gospel is transforming this area so much that it's causing riots. And as you think of being a, a Christian in this kind of environment, you can imagine the Ephesians facing discouragement, trying to live for Jesus in a, in a place, in a time, in a culture like that. And while things are certainly different for us, there are similarities. There have always been for, for Christians because this world is not our home. You may, you may not have caused like a, a citywide riot uh, as you preach the gospel in Waltham Common. Um, though, hey, if that happens, God's sovereign. But maybe you've been ridiculed or mocked by a coworker because you believe in a guy who died and rose from the dead and float, floated up to heaven, right? Or, 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 you, or a family member, or you just wrestle with how does the Christian faith work out in my workplace? Among non-Christian friends, how do I engage them? Or, or the, here's a messy one, how do I engage in politics as a Christian? Right? These are important questions for us, but if, if we're honest, when we really face those questions, they can be extremely discouraging. Right? We don't know what to do. We feel like everyone around us is, win, is winning against us. And the Ephesians can, can relate. So Paul is praying for them. He's praying for their strength. And notice what doctrinal truth Paul prays for them to be strengthened. The ascension. Verse 20. I'm praying for you to be strengthened by the power of God that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's resurrection. And then did what? Seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, be encouraged, Christian, because Jesus is the king who is on the throne right now. That's what Paul is praying. So how would this be an encouragement for the Ephesians and, and to us as well? Well, listen to what Paul says. He says we have a spiritual, uh, we have Jesus as our ultimate authority. He says Jesus' authority, his throne is above all. So other authorities exist, yes, some good and some bad, but none of them are ultimate. We have a spiritual authority that seeks to destroy us, don't we? Satan, our enemy. But Jesus reigns victorious over Satan. When I was a pastor at a previous church, someone sent me a drawing of Jesus and Satan arm wrestling. I can't say it with a straight face. Um, and under, underneath Jesus and Satan arm wrestling was the world. And the person who sent it to me, it was a joke. But the, I don't think the person who drew it was joking. There was a theological implication there, right? That's a, that's a worldview that says Jesus is powerful, but Satan is equally powerful. And let's just hope that Jesus has bigger biceps. I don't, you know, <laughs> right? And a lot of us, if we're not careful, we can think that way. We can think that we have an enemy that is stronger than our king, and that's not the case. Paul says, no, Jesus' authority is above all. His throne is at the right hand of God. He is reigning above all spiritual authorities. We also have governing authorities, and sometimes they function properly, and sometimes they don't, and they're proponents of evil. But regardless, our government is not ultimate. No earthly government or regime is. I don't know if you heard this last week, but ISIS, the last sort of stronghold of the caliphate, has been destroyed. And other organizations will pop up like that. Other governance, govern, uh, governments will rule, good and bad, but all of them will fade away. This is something I think we need to think deeply about as Christians in this country. 
The American church needs to understand, listen to me, that our ultimate allegiance is to no political party. Left, right, middle, red, blue, green. Our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus. Of course we engage in politics as followers of Jesus Christ. And of course it informs how we engage in this world. We don't disassociate from those things. But we, we, we engage in those things knowing that Jesus is the ultimate king. Right? You have authorities in your workplace. You have a supervisor, most of you. Maybe you are a supervisor. That authority is not ultimate. Jesus is. So you do your work. But the reason you do your job well is not merely to please your boss or or get a promotion or advance your career. All those things are fine, but you do it because Jesus is Lord. He's the boss. That's what Lord means. He reigns over all the authorities in our life. So Jesus is the ultimate authority, but Paul also says Jesus' authority is eternal. Notice he says not only in this age, but in the age to come. We were talking about this in our our DNA group a couple weeks ago. Let's just be honest. At times, it doesn't feel like Jesus is on the throne, right? At times, when we look around, it feels like the enemy is winning against us. Maybe as you seek to obey Christ and fight against sin and temptation, or you look around at what's happening on the world scene, and you think, really? Like Christ is reigning now? In the Ephesians, I believe, since this, as all Christians have throughout history. So Paul reminds them, yes, Jesus is reigning now on the throne, but there is a future age when Christ will return and his reign will be fully realized. So theologians have used this phrase, the already and not yet of the kingdom. Is the kingdom of God here and now? Is Jesus reigning here and now? Or is he going to reign in the future? And the answer to that question is yes. The ascended Christ right now is on the throne, subduing his enemies. Yet, there's a coming day when he'll return and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. That's why after the ascension, as we read earlier in Acts 1, verse 11, the angels say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. Maybe a helpful way to think of this is to consider the end of of World War II as an illustration. D-Day was a significant day in the end of the war, June 6, 1944, Normandy. It was when the the forces, um, uh, is when the Allied forces began to push back the Axis forces in occupied lands in Europe. It was the beginning of the end, but it wasn't until almost a year later, what we call V-Day or V-E Day, when the war was officially over. And during that year, though the end of the war was in sight, battles still raged on. And though good was winning, there were certainly times where I'm, it, I'm sure it didn't feel that way. Right? There's a sense spiritual we're living in that gap here. Christ is on the throne. He's inaugurated his kingdom. But yes, we look forward to that coming day when the ascended Christ will return again. That's V-Day. That's the ultimate victory. As when Revelation 11.15 says, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Jesus is on the throne, but there's an already not yet aspect to his kingdom. Now, what does this mean for us? It means we have hope in the midst of a hopeless world. Have you noticed how much ascension language that we use in our lives, 
we say, oh, she's at the top of her game, or, or he's climbing up the corporate ladder, or things are looking up. There, there's something in us, whether it's school, or whether it's work, or whether it's our hobbies, we want to ascend to that highest level. We, want, we have ambition, and there's nothing wrong with ambition. It's, it's godly, unless we're placing our ultimate hope in things that don't last. And unless we're bowing down to a king whose throne will not last. And so the question for us is, where is your hope this morning? Or to put it another way, who is your king this morning? Because if you're hoping in anything or anyone other than King Jesus, you will eventually be sorely disappointed. Because everything has a shelf life, right? But if your hope is in the sovereign enthroned and returning King Jesus, you'll be able to endure all the hardships that you face in this life. You'll be able to, to handle the highs and the lows because you know that something or someone rather better and higher is coming. Your hope is in an ultimate king. Let me, let me put it this way. If I live a long life by God's grace and if I die in, in old age, my life, just like all of yours, will still be just a blip on the radar of eternity. Right? So instead of wasting my time, wasting my life, placing my hope, and try to, trying to ascend to things that will not last, why not start rehearsing for what I'm going to be doing in 10 billion years? Delighting in and submitting to my good and sovereign and worthy and holy King Jesus. Jesus' as king also means that we have an important task ahead of us. As I was studying this week, I got to that part and I thought, amen, I can't wait for that day. And I thought, okay, why do we got to wait so long? <laughs> have you ever thought of that? Like, Jesus, I'm glad you ascended into heaven. Why don't you just take us with you? Well, because there is a task for us. The king has given his people a mission. And so what is that task? That leads us to number three. The ascension means we have a sure mission. And for this, we look back at Acts 1.8. And we see that the ascended Jesus is the one who sends out his people. Look at Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now think back to that original question. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus were with us in bodily form right now? Jesus in the New Testament answers that question with a resounding no, it wouldn't. Jesus has already told his disciples that it's better for him to ascend to heaven in John 16. Why? Because when he leaves, he's going to send a helper. He's going to send the Holy Spirit, God's presence dwelling in and empowering followers of him and now Jesus is about to leave and he's reminding them again this is going to happen essentially what Jesus says here is do you know what's better than having me among you part of the time is having God's spirit in you all of the time and unless I leave that can't happen right so he reminds them of this coming Holy Spirit it's a good thing it means God's presence is not distant from us it means his dwelling in those who believe then he gives them a mission. I remember one pastor telling me about Acts 1.8 when I was a young Christian. He said, Acts 1.8 shows us that Jesus' last words are our first priority. Right? A few months ago, 
my wife was traveling for a few days, and she was understandably probably a little concerned about me being in charge of the house. And so um, before she left, she kindly made sure in a very clear way that I knew all of my responsibilities when she was gone. And my, my wife's just incredible like this, and I'm very distracted. So there was, you know, bullet points, and there was food lists, and there's here's what you're eating on this day. So Because if not, I'll just give them, like, nachos and chicken nuggets, you know. And she, we were sitting down and saying, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm coming back, but here's what you need to do while I'm away. Right? That's, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I'm leaving, and while I'm away, here's what's going to happen. You're going to receive power, the Holy Spirit, and here's what you will do. He gives them one thing. You will be my witnesses. So Jesus has secured our salvation as our ascended priest. He's reigning as a sovereign king. Now, the next time he comes and ushers in his kingdom, he will also come as a righteous judge to judge those who don't believe. So what has he done? In his infinite grace and mercy, he has allotted time from his ascension to his coming return for his people to take the message of the reigning Christ, the gospel, to the world around them so that as many people as possible would repent and believe and find life in Christ. So what do we do as we await his return? We're to live as spirit-empowered witnesses declaring the reign of Christ. I think that's one of the reasons why the angels, in an almost comical way, as the disciples are standing there just staring in the sky, Luke tells us the angels are like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> He's gone. You go to Jerusalem. There's, there's work to be done. We don't just sit around and stare up in the sky and wait for Jesus to come back. We have a task. And if you read on in Acts, you see that exactly what Jesus said would happen happens. Next chapter, the Spirit falls and fills His people. Acts 2, Pentecost. More than 3,000 people are converted after a single sermon. And the gospel spreads like wildfire in the book of Acts, and it spreads the same way it spreads today, not by the intellect or wisdom of any man or woman, but by the Holy Spirit power of God in the reign of Christ. And so here we are, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, watching Christ build his kingdom. Listen to what Tim Chester and Johnny Woodrow say as they think about this practically. They say, we see the reign of Christ wherever his word is proclaimed and trusted. If your friend responds with faith to an evangelistic course, then Christ's reign has been extended. If you talk about how you became a Christian with a colleague at work, then Christ's reign is being announced. If someone is baptized, then Christ's reign has taken visible form in their life. If you make a choice to obey Christ's command in the face of temptation, you hold on to the promises of Christ in the face of adversity, then Christ's reign is present history. Your church, Seven Mile Road, your church is the place in your neighborhood where Christ's reign can be seen and experienced. That's the mission, proclaiming Christ's reign. Now, how do we go about this mission? First, we go about this mission with complete and total humility. What grace that God would choose people like you and me, flawed, sinful people, to take the message of the king to the nations and to the world around us. Don't you think he could have snapped his fingers? Right? Don't, don't you think that he could use some other way? But what has he done? He's chosen his people, whom he dearly loves, 
And this isn't just something that is for people with great communication skills or people with seminary degrees or people who do this for for full-time living. Declaring and displaying the gospel is the joyful privilege of every single Christian. It's a privilege. What a humbling encouragement that he would choose us. So we go about this mission with humility. We also go about it relying upon the Holy Spirit. This is an impossible mission. We cannot make people believe the gospel. It's a miracle of grace. So here we have this responsibility to go out and we want to see people come to know Christ. But listen, don't don't misunderstand this. The, The mission isn't go out and convert people yourself. The mission is be a witness. We're just announcing the reigning king. We're just telling people about the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And that if they would turn and believe the gospel, it would be drawn into his kingdom. And the Holy Spirit does the work. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens eyes. So we go trusting and relying upon the Holy Spirit to sovereignly work to build his church. Likewise, if you're like me, you need the Spirit for wisdom and guidance as you think about bringing the gospel to others. Holy Spirit, I always talk to my neighbor just about the weather, and I know I need to go deeper. Would you help me? Or God, I have shared the gospel with my brother 50 times, and he has not come to believe. God, would you save him, please? Or God, I, I'm just apathetic about the mission. I know I should care, but I'm, I'm entangled with the things of this world. So would you stir my heart to love you and to love others enough to bring the gospel to them? And Jesus promises us that the Holy Spirit will convict of sin. He will guide us and direct us. And then lastly, we go about this mission with boldness. Why? Because it's, it's a sure mission. We're not wondering, ah, is Jesus going to win? Is the kingdom going to be built? Is he going to return? No. This mission is sure because it's Jesus' mission and he's the one who's on the throne. He's secured salvation in the presence of God. He's sovereignly reigning on the throne of God and he has promised, Matthew 16, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is why as the disciples were hearing and seeing Jesus ascend into heaven, their immediate response was joy and worship. He's finished his work here. He's secured our salvation. He's ascending to the throne. Now, what privilege we have to take this sure mission to those around us. And so may we, as we, as we close, may we live by faith in him alone for salvation in submission to him alone as our true king, and empowered by the Spirit to take the message of the gospel to this world as we await his return.